Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Julian Emanuel of BTIG, or all we got is a stupid hat. Uh, tell us about BTIG Charity Day first. So give us 20 seconds on well, this. You guys raised a ton of money. Yeah, we've raised uh, $45 million since 2003. And you know, the, the, the belief is that when Stephen Starker and Scott Kavalik founded the firm, they wanted to really you know, create a spirit of giving, a culture of giving. And so we have this day uh, once a year where the firm donates all its commissions right. to charity, uh, <clears throat> designated by the clients and our celebrity guest traders. Again, Mike Bloomberg and uh, luminaries from uh, sports and, and so on. That's so fantastic. The, so the John Farrell, I got to get through the month charity is is one of the donors. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on a, on a massive effort, Julian. It is. And, and good luck today. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about the equity markets. Dollar strength. Is that good or bad for stocks? It's good. And and people misinterpret it. Um, you know, there's this this thing that we call in recency bias. So we saw the stock market rise consistently in 2017 uh, alongside a weaker dollar. And there's this sort of mental dislocation that investors have right now that they don't really fully buy into the fact that stocks can rise with a strong dollar. In fact, a strong dollar is going to increase the, f- the Fed's flexibility and put a lid on inflation. So let's think about the, the big sector where we got the leadership from in the, in the equity market over the last year or so. It came from tech. Tech is um, a growth story. It's also a very international story. And the weaker dollar certainly helped out tech over the last year. Is it not a headwind for the big sector that's led most of this run so far over the last year? It is. There's no question about it. And that's that's why it's actually neutral for for us at BTIG. Um, But it isn't an unequivocal negative because the flip side of that story is that with a stronger dollar, yields on the long end seem to be very tame. The fact that Treasury volatility is near its all-time lows. Imagine if the VIX were back to 9 or 10. That's the equivalent of where Treasury volatility is right now. Yeah. That's a positive for high multiple technology So stocks. is your basic argument that this will keep financial conditions looser than, on a, than they otherwise would be because the Fed won't have to go that quickly? Uh, it, it, yes. It, it's it's going to be one of those ones where the Fed gets more leeway to react to incoming data in a manner, as we heard from Powell earlier today, that the markets will be able to anticipate. What did you think of the uh, the speech from Chairman Powell today? The idea that people overstate the Fed's influence on global financial conditions. I think some people might take issue with that. Uh, I think that was a bit of uh, modesty. Uh, the, the fact is, is that the Fed has always been a critical player in the evolution of financial conditions. Uh, when you look at how the world recovered in 2009, mm-hmm. but also the flip side is that history shows that recessions start because the Fed tightens too much. Well, but how far away from too much? I mean, acting as an economist, you're going to tell me. We're, we're, we're way, way, way away from too much. Well, we are. And, and to the Fed's credit, this cycle began with core PCE, you know, closer to one and a half than, you know, having to react to core PCE trading to one, nine or two where we are now. So we've already started building in 
the preconditions for the recovery and growth to continue. Real rates are still pretty much negative. This is a still this is an accommodative Federal Reserve still. How much longer for? Uh, you tell me when the ECB is going to start hiking, and and I'll tell you yeah. when the Fed can get less accommodative. Um, it is it, it's a global picture, um, and and there are still players out there that are creating the conditions for monetary accommodation. So for the year end story, Julian, has anything changed for you guys? Because I saw a note come across my desk yesterday that had a three handle for the S and P five hundred. You're looking for 3,000. We are, and and that's been our base case the entire year. But when we looked at uh, 2018, the view was that we were going to get a lot more volatility than we've gotten in 2017. So by those rights, the correction that we've had for the last several months is not a surprise. And in fact, what we're doing by this correction, what we're doing by sort of the negativity surrounding things like a stronger dollar and obsession with inflation mm-hmm. and so on, is creating the conditions for the wall of worry that stocks always climb and that got destroyed in January right. uh, for higher prices in the second what half. What is the distinctive fee? Oh, we got to go. Darn it. <laughs> have a charity day more often. You know, we got to leave it Tom, to Tom, there's a clock on <clears throat> your screen. I have a clock. It's my first day. What can I say? Julian Emanuel, thank you so much. And to all at BTIG. Does Greenfield show up at this thing? Oh, absolutely. Rich Greenfield is allowed to attend? Rich is a presence at BTIG. No question about it. Rich Greenfield at BTIG with Walter Pizek and a guy named Emmanuel is It's a great team. BTIG, Charity Day. What we're going to do right now, folks, we're thrilled to have Jacques Rousseau uh, with us with uh, Clearview Energy Partners. Jacques, you have a telling note. Forget about Iran. Forget about the dollar. Forget about all this other baloney. You lead with Venezuela. Start with our listeners coast to coast. Do we really care about Venezuelan oil? Why is that? Well, oil is such a global market that you really need to follow where the supply is coming from. And Venezuela has historically been one of the larger supplies of oil in the world. And, and that started to change. And we've seen a significant reduction in overall supply from Venezuela. And that's causing a major impact on the market right now. Are we ready for a pullback in Iranian crude as well? Iran is a def- a definitely a different situation because there actually hasn't been any volumes of oil taken off the market from Iran, and we don't know if there will be. A lot of new information will come out when the president talks later today, and what you should be watching for is the level of European cooperation in what the U.S. announces. So if the United States announces that they won't extend the waiver on oil sanctions, what will that ultimately mean for you, Jack? Well, just by itself, that doesn't really mean much. We're going to need to know a lot more of the details as to who else is going to be involved and which path the president is going down in terms of of, uh, sanctioning um, Iran, because there definitely could be a a lot of different outcomes. Now, initially, if you look back a few years, um, there was over a million barrels per day of Iran supply that came off the market. And that is not, we're not in the same game as that as we were a few yeah. years ago. Well, I know Jenna wants to continue this, but I, I want to be rude and cutting because this is so critical. This afternoon, can the president cut off Iranian oil? Because he probably wants to say that 
But can he really do that? Uh, no. I mean, Iran exports over 2 million barrels per day of oil to Asia, and that, that supply is unlikely to change. There's about 600,000 barrels per day that goes to Europe, and that could potentially change, but not right away. That's something that could be later in the year, next year, or even not at all. And so that's what we need to figure out from what the president says today. What's your base case today, Jack? I think that the European um, Union is unlikely to cooperate uh, with what the president is coming out with. So I think you're going to see the U.S. Um, allow the waiver to lapse on May 12th, but initially that's not going to cause any sort of supply disruption. So what can the president do ultimately that pleases both allies in the Middle East, the likes of Israel and Saudi Arabia, that would like the president to pull out of this deal and at the same time appease European allies that want him to stay in? Is there any middle ground, Jack? That's, that's a great question. And, and I think um, we're going to have to get our policy analyst, Kevin Book, on to go through the um, complex maze of outcomes that could uh, take place here. Uh, but from my perspective, looking at supply demand, I do not expect any supply to come off the market uh, this year from Iran. Well, that's a really important point, And I guess we can sort of take that point and draw out our thoughts on what we think is going to happen ultimately with the deal. Um, Jack, looking at oil prices right now through 70 on WTI yesterday, a, a move that we hadn't seen in, in many, many years. And I'm just looking at the situation in the oil market and trying to work out, is this a supply disruption story with a geopolitical risk? premium injected back into the market, or are we underappreciating the demand side to this rally over the last year? That's a great question, and, and there's definitely components of all of those that are involved in the market. Um, with the OPEC supply cut, I think the way I like to think about this is if Venezuela was producing at its normal quota level, the oil market would be balanced, supply equals demand, and I think oil price would probably be $20 lower. Well, but because we've seen such well, a massive amount of oil from Venezuela leave the market, yeah. that is what's causing the major problem in the spike in oil. This is just fascinating. You're telling me we'd be at, you know, not to take it to a dollar, but we'd be at fifty, at fifty-five or fifty-eight dollar West Texas Intermediate, ex Venezuela. Exactly. They're, this is a significant amount of oil. They've taken more oil off the market than Saudi Arabia has. So this is a big yeah. number. And then you have to say, when is this actually going to get any better? Right. All the data flow coming out of Venezuela continually gets worse. So uh, do you model 80 $85 oil? Can you even model out 24 months back to $100 a barrel? No, I don't think we will get up that high. And, and so the way you have to think about it is there's a significant amount of oil that's voluntarily being taken off the market. And yeah. as prices drift up, a lot of that oil is likely to start to move back onto the market. And then flipping over to the demand side of the equation, as oil prices rise, we do see a sensitivity and the demand starts to go down. So there's, there's a natural balancing that occurs. Jack, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the politics of OPEC at the moment and begin with a question on Saudi Arabia. If the Saudis could pick an oil price right now, what would it be? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, the numbers that have been thrown out in the media are somewhere in the neighborhood of $80 a barrel. The uh, IMF uh, has put out a number <laughs> saying that their budget is balanced at $88 a barrel. So I think that's the direction they want to go. Um, the way I think about it is that they want to keep oil prices relatively high for the yeah. Saudi Aramco IPO that uh, is probably going to take place in about a year from now from media reports I've heard. 
So that's the direction they're moving towards. So fold that into the politics of OPEC at the moment, because as far as I understand, the Iranians are quite sensitive about the oil price getting too high and what that could ultimately mean for, for demand, Jacques. Are the Saudis on their own pushing for a higher oil price, and can they take the rest of OPEC with them? Well, if you think about where the oil is actually coming off the market, uh, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Russia, Mexico, that comprises the bulk of the oil that's actually been removed from the market. So um, I think the other people are mostly along for the ride and, and have yeah. made minor adjustments. So I, I don't think you could see a, a big boom in supply coming out of uh, different parts of OPEC. I just triangulated, John, the extrapolation of oil out to $100 a barrel. And, you know, it's a real rough thing. I'm not going to put it out across Twitter for Bloomberg Radio, but it's autumn of 2019. If the trend continues, autumn of 2019, November of 2019-ish is where you get to $100 a barrel. When you say they take the oil off the market, what do they do with it? Oh, they just lower their production levels. So They just stop um, making it. So you have to question, there's always the question is how much of this could come back on and how fast. And general thinking is that Saudi Arabia is the one that has the spare capacity that could put put a significant amount of oil back onto the market, you know, upwards of a half a million to a million barrels per day. The other players are fairly small. Do you have one final question? Do you have a dollar barrel amount where Saudi pulls a trigger on that? I mean, there's got to be a point where they throw in the proverbial towel. No, I, I think they look at it as um, in case of emergency. So if if we did see some sort of massive drop in supply somewhere else, then they could put some of their oil back on the market. But as we mentioned before, I think the key thing for them is to keep oil prices high for yeah. the Aramco IPO. Brilliant. Jacques Rousseau, thank you so much. Clearview Energy Partners uh, with us. Uh, let us begin. This is a, a important conversation because it goes to the midterm elections and where we go from here. We've been talking a lot on the Iran announcement today. John Hudak with us with Brookings uh, Institution, uh, working in governance, but also working in how we do our elections. John, if you were to have a cup of coffee with one of our global audience today, how would you describe the midterm election process in America? The midterm election process in America is extremely complicated. It's multi-tiered in the sense that there are multiple different uh, times and places that people will vote. I think most people across the world are actually shocked at how often Americans end up voting. Uh, but it also is determinative of what the next two years of Washington politics and policy uh, will be like. So it's tremendously important. Is it normal that whoever the president is, the other party does better in a midterm. Yeah, since the 1950s, that rule has been true in every midterm except two of them. In 1998, around the time that Republicans were working to impeach President Clinton, uh, and in 2002, just um, you know, 14 months after the September 11th terrorist attacks. But otherwise, the out party, the party that it does not hold the White House, uh, picks up seats uh, in midterms. How is the out party doing this time around? Uh, right now, it, there's really two stories to tell. In the in the House, the U.S. House, uh, the Democrats are looking good. The, every indicator and every uh, 
sort of signal and uh, data bit that political scientists look at show good things for Democrats. Republicans are retiring. There are a lot of Republicans who are holding seats in districts that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. Uh, Enthusiasm is on their side. The uh, generic ballot number is on their side. Uh, And so it looks good in the House. The Senate is a different story because the numbers are more difficult for Democrats in the Senate because there are a lot of uh, seats held uh, held in states that Donald Trump did quite well in, held by Democrats in states Donald Trump did quite well in. So they're on the defensive in the Senate. John, you explore this concept of nominating the embarrassing versus nominating the electable. Walk me through that concept and perhaps define what is embarrassing in 2018. Well, embarrassing in 2018 is the type of candidate who uh, we're seeing right now in in West Virginia, a candidate who's injecting racial slurs into his rhetoric, who is um, a convicted felon responsible for the deaths of 29 minors in um, an accident uh, in West Virginia, which the company cut corners around. Um, That is not the type of individual who most people would want to see uh, running for the United States Senate or sitting in the United States Senate. Senate. And we have a variety of different uh, hues of, of that kind of embarrassing. Right. And Republicans have fallen victim to these types of candidates before, and it's a real problem right. for them. Uh, part of your study of governance, John Hudek with his folks with Brookings, with a real focus on governance, is I believe about money as well. Is everybody got money up to the eyeballs this time around, or is one of the parties or selected races running on fumes where they just don't have the million dollars you need. Well, the parties are well-funded, um, depending on which campaign accounts you're looking at. In some places, Democrats are doing quite well. In other places, Republicans are doing quite well. Candidates are raising money um, at exceptional levels. In fact, we have uh, a, an unprecedented number of Democrats running for congressional seats in this midterm election, and an unprecedented number of those as a percentage are raising significant sums of money. And while uh, money doesn't always determine the outcome. That is, it's not always true that the person who raises more money wins. Uh, You do need some level of funding to be legitimate. You're not going to be, if you're running against someone who has $5 million in the bank and and you raise $5,000, yeah, you're probably not going to win that race. Uh, But but money is being raised hand over fist in American elections this time. John, let's talk about the message on the campaign trail. The, The lazy sort of 101 kind of approach to Trump journalism is to look at whatever he does or whatever he's about to do and say, this is about playing to the base. Um, We see that with Iran at 2 p.m. today. This is about playing to the base. Does the base really care about the JCPOA? Uh, No, they really don't. Um, What the base cares about oftentimes is what the president tells them they should care about, um, because for a lot of, and that's not a criticism of those voters, for a lot of those voters, uh, they truly believe that the direction the president has led them so far has been a good one. And while they don't care, like you said, about the JCPOA, they do care about America winning, America cutting better deals, America positioning itself better in the global setting than it has in the past. And what the president has conveyed to those voters is that the Iran deal is bad for them and something different will be better. What will you look for tonight at 10 p.m.? Well, I think all eyes are on West Virginia. Um, West Virginia has an opportunity tonight uh, to end this Senate race and deliver that race to the incumbent Democrat. 
if West Virginia voters um, nominate uh, Blankenship, it will be a disaster um, for the party. It will be a missed opportunity for the party um, to really challenge a vulnerable Democrat. And it will be, I think, a signal uh, to other Republican voters in the mm-hmm. country that there are consequences for voting for just bad, outrageous yeah. candidates. John, thank you so much. John Hudak with uh, Brookings uh, here on the midterm elections. Kevin Cerulli, I know, is hugely, hugely uh, focused on that uh, as well. This is a joy, and it is a joy because as we talk to people like Ann Richards of M&G in London or Sally Krawchuk, where their esteemed work at Sanford Bernstein years ago in securities analysis, it is one thing to speak on employment and diversity with someone with first-order academic chops. Barbara Y. is out of the prestigious combine of the South Carolina University University of Carolina Electrical Engineering, you were double E back there. And one day you wandered into Essentials of Physics 1, PHYS 211. And you, how lonely were you? How many women were in Physics 1 at South Carolina a few years back? So not very many. Um, but what I'll say is I grew up in the Carolinas in a tiny little dirt road town yeah. uh, near Myrtle Beach. And I had five brothers and youngest of eight kids, two sisters. Uh, so I entered into Carolina with a lot of courage and strength. Uh, but I certainly Just surviving could, dinner with all those yeah, kids around the table. Chopping I don't wood. like the Brussels sprouts. Good, I'll eat them. Goodbye. <laughs> exactly. So uh, <clears throat> yeah. so I would say my, my parents, neither of whom graduated from high school, right. yet they had instilled in us that education was the path to empowerment. Is the loneliness you knew as a woman at South Carolina double E the same as the loneliness today in engineering. I would suggest there's not much change, even with all the efforts. We got a long way to go where women are inclusive in STEM. So I would say if you look at uh, women and underrepresented minorities in engineering today, we haven't made a ton of progress. And this is why the diversity and inclusion initiative work that Intel is driving is so paramount uh, to really move in the needle. And what I will say is our CEO, Brian Krasanich, he announced a $300 million initiative to really drive critical progress in this area. Um, And since that uh, launch of the initiative, we've reduced our market availability gap by about 84%. Excuse me, that's massive surveillance jargon. What is a market availability gap? I'm excited to tell you all about it. So uh, you mentioned this in terms of representation. So we know women roughly represent about 49% of the workforce today, but not all of those women, to your great point, are entering into STEM careers. So Intel's goal and the metric is around the market that is available of women in STEM careers, as well as African-Americans, Hispanics, and Native Americans. And we desire to be at that market availability metric are higher and willing as we increase our initiatives and investments earlier in K through 12 in college as that market availability number increases, we want to increase with that. Right, right. Now, Barbara, uh, you're here uh, not only just to speak with us, but also to attend Bloomberg's Equality Summit and Diversity in the Workplace. Mm-hmm. What do you want people to take away from your presentation? 
So two things I would highlight uh, for you about this diversity and inclusion work. And I know we're in New York and this is uh, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm's uh, world. And she said, boldness is required. And you need the same level of boldness in doing this kind of work, I believe, as the first person that uh, decided to eat oysters. You need just that level of courage to do diversity and inclusion work and drive the progress that you need. The second thing that I think is important that Intel has gotten right is this work is a performance metric that is measured by what is done and is a part of our employee bonus structure. Uh, I think far too often people... Uh, set goals, but they aren't held accountable to those goals. So what we're trying to drive inside of the Intel culture is no different than what I would be doing if I was on an engineering project for Intel with Mm -hmm. a deadline. We set goals. We try and achieve those goals. We hit them, and then we set bigger goals. As someone who's a veteran of Silicon Valley, you've often heard about goals that Silicon Valley companies set, but then when you take a look at those people who are actually running the companies— Does it make you feel that it is really an uphill battle? Yeah, I can't really speak to the other companies, but what I can tell you about Intel is this has been a very serious commitment for us, is very much integrated into all of the systems and our leadership processes. We have strong commitment from our senior leaders, our middle managers, and my employees, they hold me accountable. I want to get down to the nitty-gritty here. We thank New Jersey (laughs) Institute of Technology, which has been a huge supporter of our STEM report here at Bloomberg Surveillance. How do you get a woman in fifth grade or first grade or eighth grade or whatever to sustain the social pressure of getting through math, you go through LP calculus, you're doing well, and then you get into calculus one at South Carolina. How do we handle that social negativity upon women? It's tangible. Yeah, I'm a living example of that. So I would say the key things, if I had to extract out what was so important for me to start at the University of South Carolina, attend uh, an electrical and engineering program, Pursue a master's in business administration. Right. And now I'm currently working on a PhD. The key things that are important there what is... What is it? Good question. First, females and underrepresented minorities need access and exposure. So the quota... Okay, we get them in the class. You Fine. get them What's in the, the classroom. Thing? Then you also need sponsorship as well as role models because it's difficult for you to be what you can't see. And this is the role that my siblings played mm-hmm. so uh, critically right. important role within models. my life. Because I could look at an older brother okay. who's majoring in well, chemistry and say, hey, I can do that as well. Can you come so, back? Yes. Okay, you're on, we're going to run out of time here, but Barbara, we've got to have you back as well. Yes. We'd love important. to come back. We look forward to it. Can you bring a slide roll next time? You're too hey. young to have or, used a slide roll. Oh, come on. Hey, She's got I plenty. can bring the slide Barbara roll and White. the big heavy PC. Intel Corp's Chief Diversity Inclusion Officer, Vice President of Human Resources, attending Bloomberg's Equality Summit and Diversity in the Workplace. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.